Why do so many writers say that outlining prevents them from being creative? Oh, I think that um, I think a lot of writers feel like if they outline too in too detailed of a manner, it will sort of force them into a corner when they're writing, right? They'll have it too planned out. It'll take the creativity out of it. It'll take that sort of spontaneity out of their creative process or something like that. Um, I, I guess that's my that's my best guess that that's why some writers think that um, that outlining is stifling, but I actually think that outlining the the process of outlining your story, like breaking your story and and forming the outline, can be the creative process, right? Like that sort of creative process that you look for when you're writing of discovery and you know coming up with new ideas by kind of juxtaposing things that you didn't expect or whatever. You can do that in the outlining process itself, right? And kind of have all of those sparks of inspiration and creativity while you're working in that in that format instead of in on the page, if that makes sense. Do you get a lot of pushback from writers who don't want to outline? Um, not a ton. I you know, I think it's probably 50/50 in terms of writers who like to outline or at least have learned that it's more helpful than than uh, painful for them, right? And so there are you know plenty of, of writers who embrace outlining as part of their process, um, and there. But then there are also writers who um, either you know feel like it's too stifling or um, don't really have a good process, and so they stay away from outlining or or avoid it just because they don't really. Um, have like a set of steps that they can go through that sort of reliably helps them plan out their story, right? Um, some writers consider themselves very intuitive writers and they're, um, you know, they're, they're pantsers instead of plotters. Um, I don't think that even those writers that consider themselves sort of, you know, intuitive writers, I don't think that I get a lot of pushback from them. Um, usually those writers, if they've been through a few writing projects, and it's been a struggle <laughs> to get all the way through because they haven't had a map to kind of guide them through it, an outline. Um, they're usually not pushing back on needing an outline. They're coming to me because they're like, okay, I don't really love the outlining process, but I feel like I need one in order to help me get through the draft, right? So more than anything, they're coming to me and saying like, I wanna learn a little bit about outlining that I can maybe incorporate into my more freeform process, but that will give me some structure to kind of help me get through the writing, you know? And do you think when we tell a writer that this outlining is so much part of the process and really if you don't have one, it's like building a house without a good set of sort of blueprints, um, that it, it's like pulling back this, this magical curtain that they thought it was just going to be this free-flowing thing and it's almost disappointing in some way? Um, I hope it's not dis disappointing, um, but uh, yeah, I think that maybe maybe coming up with a story in the outlining process to some writers feels like it's um, it's going to be too technical and too rigid, right? Um, but but if you you know actually start because outlining can mean so many different things to so many different writers, right? So if you actually start kind of working through different steps, different tools, different, you know, types of processes to get th get through an outline, you'll see that it's really adaptable. It's, you know, the process of outlining is kind of whatever you make of it. It's whatever helps you prepare to write whatever it is you're writing. So, I don't know. I don't think it's um 
I don't think it's necessarily like disappointing to writers, but I think that it's uh, maybe eye-opening. Like they they figure out kind of what outlining really is and, and what it is is specific to them. It's like whatever's going to help you plan enough that you have that kind of, you know, structure to get through writing your draft. Is outlining a burden or is it really part of the process? Well, I think it's part of the process for sure. Um, I hope that writers don't think of it as a burden um, because I actually think that the outlining process is where a lot of the fun and creativity can happen. Um, it's where you have the joy of sort of, you know, exploring and discovering your story and figuring out a lot of the fun stuff about it. So I hope it doesn't feel like a burden. Um, I do think that whatever sort of prep you do for your story is part of your own personal process. And, you know, whether you are a very detailed outliner or more of just a like sort of broad, broad strokes, I got to figure out kind of the general shape of my story. I consider all of that sort of the pre-writing or, or outlining process. So whatever it is for you is, is part of the process for you, you know? Why is it hard for writers who think they have a great idea to actually start writing their ideas down and begin the writing process? Hmm, it's a good question. I'm sure there are a lot of different answers to this question, just depending on the writer. Um, I think part of it is probably fear, right? And that fear can also be different for different writers too. Before you write anything down, I think an idea can feel complete and perfect in your head. <laughs> and then when you sit down to start actually breaking it down or planning it, you can it can be a little um, surprising at how little you actually know about the idea before you started to try to write it down. It felt very complete and perfect. And then when you start to write it, sometimes it, it can, or you know, start to plan it, it can feel like, oh, I thought I had more of this figured out, or I thought this idea was a little bit more solid or complete, you know? Um, so I think that can be scary and can discourage people from beginning the process because they feel like they want to figure out more of it in their head still before they start putting anything on paper. Um, I actually think putting it on paper is kind of what helps you work through that and, and helps you figure out your story. Um, so I would encourage people to go ahead and just start. But, um, but yeah, I think it's probably fear. You know, something can feel very um, solid and uh, make sense before you have to articulate it. And then when you try to articulate it, it ends up, you know, sort of showing the holes in it, so. Do you think it's because a lot of uh, writers or quote unquote artists in general live in their heads so much and, and they, it feels so real to them, the story, and then when you actually say, okay, let's actually see it, on the, and, and then it's, it's, you're, you're asking them to be in reality. Which is yeah, I'm sure that, that there is truth to that because so many writers are, you know, living in their imaginations a lot of the time. Um, I also think that, you know, a lot of times when we get inspired by a story idea, we get really excited about it. What we're thinking about most of the time is that sort of act one setup portion of it. It's like the interesting situation, that sort of funny what if, or what if, you know, how, how would this happen, or why would this happen? Um, and then when you sit down to kind of figure out the whole story, you realize, oh, the part that got me so excited, and there's nothing wrong with it at all, but the, the part that gets us excited is that setup. It's that situation, right? That interesting what if. And then the rest of the story is the part that you still have to figure out. Um, so I think that that, you know, it's not that you, it's not that you came up with an idea that you thought was better than it actually is. It's that you came up with an idea that you have only partially figured out 
as is natural, right? Because you came up with that part first and then the work of it is sort of figuring out the rest of the story, the, the journey that your character is going to go on. So, Right. I think that's what I was feeling. I just didn't know how to put it into words. And I think that that was, yeah. that's it. It's that's like the, the setup is so vivid in our minds, yeah. but then actually having it pay off and there be an arc yes, and, and, and a resolution to it. I think that's, yeah. 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 Because that's usually that's that spark of inspiration is we get inspired by that. Like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if this happened or wouldn't it be like dramatic or scary if, you know, this happened? Um, and that's all that act one setup stuff. So what is your argument for writers to learn an outlining process that works for them? Hmm, my argument for it. Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, I, I think that having a process will help you. Right. Having something to fall back on when you feel stuck or you feel frustrated or you feel like, I thought I had this story all figured out and now I'm <laughs> realizing it's only the beginning. Um, having a process that you have sort of worked through before, you know that it works for you, or at least you know that you have some tools to draw on that can help you get unstuck. I think that's helpful helpful for any writer, right? Um, and you know, no matter your experience level, I think with every project, there's going to be a point where you do sort of get stuck or you feel frustrated or it's not going as well as you wanted it to or you thought it would. Um, so just having that sort of toolkit, you know, which is what I think of as, a, as an outlining process. I think of it as just a toolkit, a, a bunch of tools that you, you know how to use and you can draw on them when you need them to kind of help you keep progressing through the, through the process, you know. Let's say I hire you and I have this great screenplay and I just know this is going to be, this is going to transform people's lives once it's on the screen. And I keep showing you draft after draft and your note to me is, I think we need an outline. Mm -hmm. And I'm the stubborn writer and I say, no, it's going to ruin it. And, I, you know, what, what's a tough love way to sort of be my accountability partner and say, I really think we need to go back and, and flesh this out more? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. And I, and I have worked with writers who, who were a little bit resistant to, you know, making big changes or, or something like that. Um, after a few drafts, most writers feel like, okay, I'm tired <laughs> of, of working through the whole draft, right? So I think the best argument for outlining, if you're in that situation, is like, you can work on the story in an outline form, which is much smaller and shorter and easier to manage than working on your entire draft, right? Trying to go into your screenplay pages and make changes sometimes is very difficult, right? It's you're you're adjusting things kind of in the in the living document of it versus if you make an outline even of an existing draft, uh, make your changes in that document. That's like you know, looking at the skeleton of the screenplay so you can move things around more easily. You're not looking at completed scenes that you've already fallen in love with or lines of dialogue that you love and you don't want to change. You're looking at it from a little bit more, uh, I think maybe of an objective point of view. Um, you're looking less at the sort of, you know, on the page stuff and looking at the skeleton of your story, which I think helps people kind of you know, have some perspective on it and be able to see what's not working and make changes without getting sort of bogged down in in all the stuff that all the work they've already put into it that they don't want to redo, you know? I love that. So fatigue, I like you use that word. Yeah. And so if you're seeing a fatigued writer and let's suppose I'm this again, I'm resistant. No, Neil, we've got to do it this way. It's fantastic. And then you're seeing 
the fatigue on this side, that, that does sound interesting. Then let's look at it and let's try to actually just shorten it down and then work out the problems. Yeah, and a lot of times when I'm working with writers, I will actually outline, I will make an outline from their draft so that I can talk about it in a way that is, you know, has that perspective. And I can say, okay, so if we look at act one and see here are all the scenes, you know, this is this is the issue that we're kind of trying to address. Let's look at which scenes that might be happening in or which scenes might be missing that so we're not getting the information we need or, or whatever the, the specific issue is, you know? Oh, I love that. It's almost the analogy of let's suppose I have this messy closet and I can't find anything in it. And then you come and you're this organizer and you're like, okay, let's put all of the blouses here, you know, and, yeah. and I like that. That's yeah, beautiful. That's, that's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that I have a bad closet, but yeah. <laughs> but this, it, somebody that, that has that skill of being able to see the big picture and. Yeah, yeah, and I do think too, you know, we get so attached to the things that we're writing, our, our scripts and um, our, our projects and everything that I think that sometimes it's easier to have me outline it from their draft versus for a couple of reasons. Like sometimes writers, because they've written a whole draft, they're like, well, I don't wanna go back and outline it now. I don't wanna make an outline from the thing I've already written, right? Like what good is that gonna do me? Um, so sometimes they're resistant to do it at all. But I also think that sometimes it's easier for me to do it, again, because I'm, I'm objectively looking at the script. So I can look at the scene and say, well, here's what I'm getting from the scene. That's what I'm gonna write down in the outline versus you know, if you're very close to your story, you know what you were trying to get across in that scene, and so you might outline it differently than I would as well, right? So sometimes it's helpful, I think, if I do the outline or if we compare outlines and then we can see kind of where's the discrepancy here. Oh, this is what that scene was meant to do from your point of view, and here's what I think it's actually doing, you know? Why do you say that most movie ideas are very simple? Well, I think movies, tend to be based on really simple stories. Um, one of the things that newer writers can end up doing without realizing it is overcomplicating their stories, right? Because they feel like, um, especially if they start writing without a solid outline and they kind of get stuck, they feel like, oh, I have to add more complications to give me more story to write. And they'll end up making things overly complex where, you know, the movies that we tend to see are pretty straightforward stories. They're, you know, concise setup, uh, um, some good escalations in the middle, and then wrap it up in the end. Um, and it's the execution that makes things entertaining and interesting, right? So it's it's not that we need very complex stories in movies. A lot of times, overly complex stories will be kind of hard to follow, a little bit bloated, you know, it'll be hard to kind of really go deep in a character's experience in a story that has too many complications or too many characters, uh, whereas, Typically in movies, what we see is like, you know, one person pursuing one thing and what's interesting or entertaining about it is the way that that sort of is executed. Um, the interesting cinematic, you know, cool stuff that happens along that journey, which is actually a pretty simple journey, um, but it allows us the kind of space to dive into how that character is transforming the emotional experience of it and kind of like the, the you know, cool cinematic stuff that happens along the way. Does a simple idea mean a boring screenplay? No, I, I don't think so. Um, I think most, if you look at most movies, it's actually a very simple storyline, right? It's a, it's a pretty straightforward, you know, one person trying to achieve one thing. I think a lot of times newer writers maybe worry that their stories are too simple and that will make them boring. 
But if you have a simple story, that just gives you a a nice sturdy framework to tell your story and then it gives you the, the sort of space and the freedom to find the entertaining moments and cool stuff in the execution of that story, if that makes sense. Right. And no, you've said, and I don't know if it was it was in the book or it's in an in interview, that the cliche of sort of like the, the pretty but doesn't know it or the hot mess <laughs> yeah. that sort of is rescued, you know, right. that that's been done so much. And I, I agree. Um, but what if somebody really needs to stick to the rom-com where high school reunion and best friends getting married and does anybody object, but they want to do the next memento or mm-hmm. they want to do the next crash, something that takes a little more putting together and and you guide them and say, maybe you're not totally ready for that yet. Yeah, I think that that is a challenge, right? Um, You know, some, there are some stories that are, I don't know if I would call them more complex, but the the execution of them is more advanced, right? Like Crash is intersecting storylines kind of all put together within the structure of a feature film. I would call that like an, you know, sort of advanced craft (laughs) kind of movie, right? Um, So I don't think that that's uh, necessarily an overly complicated story at all. And there definitely are newer writers who who love movies like that and who want to write something like that. And that's what's inspiring them and sort of getting them in front of the computer to write it. Uh, I certainly wouldn't discourage them. I do think that, um, you know, when you're learning, it's going to be easier to learn and to to sort of understand, to wrap your brain around like how to put a screenplay together if you work with a simpler story or a more um, sort of straightforward mainstream kind of story with one main character who's sort of pursuing one main goal in the story. That'll be easier just to learn on, um, if that makes sense. It's like when you're learning to drive a car, (laughs) you know, if you learn on an automatic, (laughs) that's a little bit easier than like learning how to shift and learning how to drive at the same time. Um, Not that it can't be done, but it just might take a little bit longer, right? Um, It might take a little more patience. Um, So, so yeah, I think that if you're if you have the desire to write something like Crash or like Memento, if you are willing to be patient with yourself and give yourself the time to sort of figure out how to write that particular screenplay, then great. You know, different people are motivated by different things. So if that's what's going to get you to show up and keep trying and cre- keep learning your craft, then go for it. Um, it just know that it might be a longer process because you're sort of learning lots of different skill sets at the same time. And learning how to write a screenplay is already a bunch of different skill sets, you know, sort of put together. Um, so that's just adding a little bit more to your plate. But it it can be done for sure. Sure. I love that analogy. So the driving the car. So it's like learning to drive in your dad's old station wagon versus some sporty little foreign model with a clutch on a hill. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and you've never driven before and you have all these people behind you honking. So yes. yeah, that that makes sense. That, yeah, that's a good, yeah, uh, but if you're in that situation, I mean, if that's what um, sort of inspires you to learn how to drive, right, then then go for it and just know that you ha- you're going to have to be you know, sort of gentle on yourself and, and patient with yourself because it's it's probably going to be you know, frustrating. But if you love the story, that's okay. You might have the patience to kind of get through that, right? Do you think audiences, though, really resonate more with simple stories or no, as long as it's a well-told story? Yeah, I think as long as it's a well-told story. Um, I think simple stories, um, the the benefit that, that maybe they offer to audiences and to writers, too, is that 
they, you know, when I say a simple story, I mean sort of like the the plot framework is fairly straightforward, um, and what you're what you're able to bring to that as a writer is finding new ways that maybe the you know sort of tropes that we expect from the genre those things are executed in a new interesting entertaining you know cinematic sort of way right so you're bringing your you're not you're not writing the boring screenplay um, just to make it easy for yourself you're you're choosing a story that gives you uh, a framework that is easy to wrap your brain around so that you can bring the creativity to it and add the entertaining stuff on top of it. Uh, and then the other benefit is that, you know, with a with a somewhat um, straightforward plot, um, I don't want to say it's too straightforward, but if with a simple plot framework that allows you to then, you know, come up with the cool reversals and interesting twists and turns and all that stuff, um, the other thing that you can that that gives you is sort of the space and the freedom to develop the character more, right? Because if you are taking less time to explain the way the plot is working or why you know complications are happening the way they are, it gives you room for the characters to feel things and to interact with each other and to transform and be you know be affected by what they're going through, and it gives you kind of some space for us to have that experience along with the character, if that makes sense. It does, and I know we've talked about Bridesmaids before and you use it as an example in the book. And what seems like a simple story, when you actually put these relationship dynamics, it's actually much more complicated and yeah. very interesting. Yeah, and that's a good example. I think that Bridesmaids is a simple story, right? It's a very clear story framework that, that they're working within, but they have all these lovely, lovely, funny, you know, set pieces that are inventive that we haven't seen before, right? So that's in the execution that they're able to kind of, you know, they have this sturdy foundation that they're building on top of, but it gives them the freedom to do really fun, funny, entertaining things. And we also, because the plot framework is so sturdy and easy for us to kind of understand what's happening, um, you know, you get that character that is nicely developed over the entire movie, which, you know, you might not expect that in a, in a broad comedy, right? But there's a lot of feeling there, too. She's really going through something in that story. So Yeah, there's a lot of levels, and, and, and it's about to, uh, the outward appearances yeah. and, and trying to kind of keep up with friendships and your peer group and stuff. And, and so, yeah, it's a movie that when I first heard about it, I was like, yeah, that's not for me. And everybody was like, oh, you got to see Bridesmaids. I'm like, no. And then I finally saw it, and I'm like, why was I resistant to it? Because yeah. it's excellent. So. Yeah, and that's one of those I can watch over and over again because it's so entertaining and there is so much sort of genuine, you know, humanity in it as well. So, If a writer has three ideas, how do they know which one to choose? Oh, well, um, I think it depends on sort of what they want out of the writing project, right? So there, I think there are a few criteria you can look to, and it's a really personal decision. I also think you don't ever have to throw an idea away. If you have three that you want to write, you know, that means you're really just choosing which one you're going to write next, and then you can always have the other two on deck, right? Um, I personally think that you should, you know, sort of gauge the concept and make sure that each idea you're weighing is a strong enough idea to be a screenplay. That's the first thing. Um, but if all that's equal, um, I think you you should look at what you want to get out of the out of the project. So is it helping you, you know, learn a new skill in your in your writing kind of toolkit? Is it um, helping you advance your career in a particular way? Is it you know filling out your portfolio of writing samples? Um, 
so that is helpful to to kind of gauge what do I want this to do for me so that you're not, you know, no writing is wasted, it's not wasted time, but so that you're getting the most out of, of the project that you're going to write. Um, and then also if you know the ending, <laughs> I think that that's very helpful um, because that, you know, sometimes if you start a writing project without knowing the ending, that can be a longer, fr more frustrating process to, to outline that. But if you kind of, you know how this story ends, the outlining of it, the figuring out kind of how the the plot progresses, all the steps in the plot and everything, that's a little bit easier because you know what, what destination you're headed towards. So that's interesting. When you said that you've, you've actually outlined four people once you mm -hmm. see their finished script, if you see someone who's hung up on the ending, do you get them to that point and then say, okay, now, I mean, I realize you're not figuring out the ending for them, mm -hmm. but do you, do you outline up until that point and then maybe that helps them through it? Well, if I'm if I'm making an outline from a finished draft that someone's you know given me to read, um, I outline exactly what they have in the draft. So if their ending isn't working or if it isn't complete, um, and I have read scripts like that, I will outline exactly what they have, and then we'll talk about you know what's missing here. Is it is that the, the ending is totally gone and you need to figure out what that is, or is it just that you know you've you've sort of wrapped up the plot, but it's not it's really not complete or, you know, resolving things as it needs to. So, I mean, that's kind of um, just a, a normal a normal day <laughs> in, in kind of doing the script consults is a lot of times the ending needs work. Um, so we'll just talk about like, how can we strengthen that? Sure, but that sounds really helpful. Just again, as it's easier for someone to come in and organize someone's space than if you have all these personal mementos and like, oh, I can't get rid of this, I can't get rid of that, oh, my grandmother gave me this. But if the, the organizer comes in and says, how about we put this over here, it, it, yeah, it sounds like it's much easier. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that that's such a good analogy because that is probably what it feels like <laughs> as well. You know, if you've written a draft and you're like, here are the scenes that I love and I want them to be in there, but you know something about it isn't working, there is that feeling of like, I'm attached to these things, but I don't know how to organize them in a way that they need to in order for it to kind of like make sense for everyone else as well, you know? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And then you open the closet door and everything <laughs> falls. Yes. And hence the screenplay might be really jumbled. And if we put it, if we make sense to the, to the, the viewer or the reader. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when I go in there, it's like, you know, I can sort of outline based on what they already have. And then we can talk about, okay, so here's what we have so far. And then here's what the third act needs to do. Like here's, you know, how it needs to resolve the plot and wrap up character arc and all that stuff. So what are we missing? And then we can kind of fill in the holes, you know. What is brain dump? Oh, um, that's just something I'm sure other people use it in different ways, but it's something that I think is a useful exercise to do at the beginning of sort of your, your story breaking process. You know, when you come up with an idea um, and you haven't really done much to shape it yet, I think it's really useful to just sort of sit down and write down everything you know about that idea um, because you end up capturing stuff that you maybe didn't realize you knew about it or thought about it. Um, and then you also sort of end up capturing like what you love about that idea when you're in that moment of still being in love with it. <laughs> so that later on when you're writing the script and you inevitably get to that frustrating part where you get stuck or you don't know what happens next and you, you know, are feeling like, why did I start writing this? You can kind of go back to that brain dump and remember like what made me fall in love with this idea to begin with? 
Or what was it about this idea that, you know, inspired me? How did I want people to feel? Um, what were my hopes and aspirations for this project, you know, before I went down, started down the long road of, of actually writing it? So, yeah. So if I have, let's say, a notebook mm -hmm. um, and it's my idea for this movie or this character, I'm just kind of like, this is my notebook where I'm going to put the good, the bad, and the ugly about this character, the story, anything I can think of. Yeah, um, and I think it's probably different for every project and for every writer, like what comes to mind. I think it's useful to give yourself a little bit of structure, you know, some parameters around the brain dump, but really it should be whatever you know about your, your project at that point in time. So I just think, you know, write down anything that, um, where the idea came from, anything that inspires you about the idea, or how do you see this finished movie, like what other movies would it would would it be like? Um, what's the soundtrack sound like? Are there any songs that give you that feeling that you want the movie to have? Um, talking about characters for sure, like who's the main character, if you know that? Um, what's that character like? Uh, what kind of relationships does that character have? Who are the people in his or her life? Um, you know, kind of anything that you sort of come to the table with when you're just getting you know, inspired by that idea, like just starting to sort of gather everything that you know about it that you're going to start shaping into the story eventually. Like, because, you know, at the beginning, it's like you have a jumble of ideas, I think. You have, oh, this would be a great scene or, you know, oh, I think it ends like this maybe with this final shot. I don't know how we get there, but it's them riding off into the sunset. Or, um, you know, I, I don't know who this character is, but I think that there's a guy who, you know, had this background or has this, you know, affectation. And I wonder how he got to be that way. And so it's just a, it's just a way for you to start to gather kind of like all of those little tidbits that you think might belong to this story, put them all in one place so that you don't have that, that feeling of like, you know, that nervous feeling of like, oh, I'm going to forget this idea and I, I don't know where it goes yet. And so you're all stressed out about trying to work it into the story. You can put it all in one place and just hold it there so that as you're working through kind of that development process, you can always go back to it and reference it, come up with those ideas that you had at one time that maybe you'd forgotten about. So, so let's suppose um, I was Eric Roth and mm -hmm. I was thought of this idea for this Forrest Gump character or based on a book, whatever. And and I thought, okay, here's my here's my notebook with Forrest in it. Mm -hmm. And so Southern Town, um, loving mom, uh, you know, uh, definitely uh, health problems with, with his legs, different things. And then meets Jenny, mm -hmm. um, meets Bubba, all these different things, meets Captain Dan, you know, t you know, different fights, different things. And his goal of, of being sort of this, just this theme through his life of, of being in like these interesting places at the right time mm -hmm. and helping people. He's almost like a helper. Yeah. Um, and so um, I'm just kind of like getting it out. This is Forrest. This is... There wasn't really anything bad about him, but these are some of the things that that make up this forest character. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, if you're working on that project or you were inspired enough to kind of sit down and start to gather your thoughts, hopefully you, there's something about 
who that character is that you really like, right? Or that interests you at least. And so, so those are the things that I think you should focus on because those are going to be the things that sort of help you later on in the story, you know? Like um, having those touchstones of like, oh yeah, I remember I really wanted this character to have this particular feeling or to maybe have this particular arc to learn this lesson across this story. Um, so yeah, I, I don't even know um, if you... I guess if you know that much about your story, it's great and write it all down, but you don't even have to try to, you know, shape it in the brain dump process. I think um, I wouldn't put pressure on yourself to try to come up with like, oh, this is first act stuff and this is, you know, where the story goes from there. It's just kind of whatever, it, you know, whatever sparks your interest when you think about that particular idea. Um, and I always like the the sort of prompts or questions you ask yourself about like, what do, how do I see this in its finished form? E even if it's not specifics, but it's like, how do I want people to feel when they see it? Or, you know, what does the soundtrack sound like is a good one because it's like, what feelings does it give you when you hear the, you know, music or what music makes you think of this idea or make you feel the way this idea makes you feel? Um, and then I also, one other thing that I think is really helpful to do in the kind of brain dump process is think about what the story means to you. Um, because that helps you start to narrow in on the theme of the story, which I think is one of those things that like really intimidates a lot of writers. It feels like, oh, I have to come up with some big profound statement. <laughs> um, but really, you're just trying to come up with like the the mean, what does it mean to you, right? Like what's the sort of takeaway message or, you know, big idea that this story imparts? And that can be really daunting and intimidating. So if you do it in the brain dump process where you're just sort of free flowing and brainstorming, um, it gives you kind of a pressure-free env environment to kind of think about like, what does the story mean? Like what kind of lesson would this character learn or what kind of lesson could this experience teach someone, you know? Um, and what's the story about for me? Like what does it, what does it sort of mean to me, you know, inside that I, that I kind of want to get at or explore in the story? Okay, so I wouldn't necessarily know maybe all of these things when I mentioned Lieutenant Dan and these things. I would just know that it's a character, maybe the odds were kind of stacked against him but he didn't really have a mean streak in him. He didn't need to get revenge on people. Yeah. Or maybe what had been done to him or or he was still just a kind-hearted guy. Yeah, and I think maybe if you were developing that story idea, right, um, in the brain dump process, you might not know the specifics about those other characters, but you might say, okay, I have this main character that I'm really interested in. I think his name's Forrest Gump and he's this type of guy, right? He's, a, he's such a kind person. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body. And the kinds of people that he could run into that would create conflict and help him kind of move through the story might be, you know, someone who he's in love with who doesn't reciprocate, right? And so he has to contend with that set of emotions. Um, maybe he has kind of a mentor character that he meets in the unlikely place of in the in the military. It's been a long time since I saw that movie, so I don't remember if uh, Dan is the mentor, but maybe he meets somebody who's very gruff and sort of the opposite of him personality-wise, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he meets Bubba, who in some ways is similar, like sort of innocent and kind of sees the world in a particular way. And so by pairing up with that person, you know, these are the kinds of things that he might experience or lessons that he might learn or situations he might find himself in, you know? You believe most movies can come down to three words? Who wants what? <laughs> yeah, I think that that's kind of the the basic nut of, of any movie, right? Is uh, you have a 
main character who is trying to achieve something. Because if you don't have those basic elements, and that's not the whole story, obviously, but if you don't have those basic elements, then then really what is the story? You don't have a, a character to sort of be our vehicle through a series of events, and you don't have anything propelling them forward or driving them forward if they're not trying to achieve something, you know? So if we just think we have this interesting character and all these different things happen to them and these cool like conflict situations, but we don't actually know what does this character want? Is that something that we really have to do a lot of soul searching? Is this, are we that character? Do we have to see, is this us? Yeah, well, I mean, I do think that characters should always be sort of like our mirror or our vehicle through the story. But when I say who wants what, I'm actually talking about more sort of external plot stuff because that's what's going to give you that that plot framework to tell your story, right? Um, so really, the who wants what is, is figuring out kind of what external plot thing or what... Um, you know, destination is your protagonist aiming toward through this story. Um, knowing that helps you plan the story and write it, but it also indicating that to the audience is really helpful because that's how we sort of track where we are in the story. If we know what that character is trying to achieve, that gives us like um, a yardstick to measure. Is he succeeding or is he failing? Is he making progress or is he having setbacks, right? And that's the, that's that like, push-pull of like hope and fear that we have when we're watching the movie is we're hoping that he <laughs> makes progress and gets to his destination, but we're fearing the worst. We're fearing all these obstacles are going to derail him or, you know, um, end up, you know, damaging him in some way, right? So that's what I really mean when I, when I say who wants what. We kind of need to know who are we watching in the story, whose story is it, and what are they trying to achieve from sort of an external plot point of view, because that gives us that spine of the story or that through line that we're, you know, tracking over the course of the movie. What distinguishes the main character from all other characters in a film? Well, the writer has decided that that's the main character. Now, <laughs> I think that um, it, it, to some degree that's, that is sort of true. You decide who whose story you're telling, right? And then what um, separates that character sort of in the screenplay or for the audience is the focus that you place on that character. You want to tell the story from that character's perspective or from their point of view so that we know who we're watching um, go through this set of experiences, right? So um, what separates the protagonist from the other characters is really the focus that you place on them and how you tell the story sort of through the lens of their experience. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. You know, I just saw a Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, yeah. For the first time. I know oh, it yeah. came out like 2011 or whatever. Did you enjoy it? I did. I love And again, <laughs> it was one, not one that I would normally think I would love. But, you know, Steve Carell, he's a good guy. You want to root for him. And then he kind of meets, you know, the dark horse who then you find out is really not that dark once mm -hmm. you get to know him. But it, it, you, it takes you on this this journey, but a lot of the side characters are also very complicated and yeah. complex. Yeah, I actually, that's a great example. I just rewatched it and I had a new appreciation for it watching it again. I remembered really liking it and finding it funny, but watching it over again, you know, already knowing where the story was going, I could sort of pay a little bit more attention to how it was put together. And you're right, like it's, it's, pretty much a true like ensemble, right? Because so many side characters get their own storylines and it, it has these intersecting storylines. But I do think Steve Carell is the protagonist in that story. Um, 
even though he, like in act two, we spend a lot of time, we go away from him and kind of shift focus to the Ryan Gosling character, right? Um, so just page count wise, you might not be able to decide like who is the main character? They both get their screen time, but I think what makes Steve Carell the character, or the protagonist there is that, um, first of all, the way the story starts, right? We kind of get into it through him, um, wanting to know kind of what his story is and, and getting on board with his experience through the story. Uh, and then he also wraps it up in the end. He's the one who learns the lesson and sort of brings that lesson <laughs> to the group and um, you know has his transformational experience and, and we're rooting for him, I think, the whole time, so. Sure, sure, but you're right. There are so many because it's not just it's not just Ryan Gosling. It's the Emma Stone character. Mm -hmm. It's the babysitter. It's all these different ones, and they all have these interesting plights that they're dealing with. Yeah, that the Kevin Bacon character, and 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 you kind of see all of their why they did what they did from mm -hmm. these different things. But you still, in the end, you root for the Steve Carell, or at least yeah, you know, yeah. most viewers would. Yeah, and it's so it, it does such a good job of like not making anyone the villain as well, which I thought That's was really fun. Um, and uh, yeah, and and you're right, you're right, it's a great one. <laughs> yeah, it is, It is. Yeah, and it's one that, simple concept, but then when you take all the relationship dynamics and all the little nuances and stuff, it's, yeah. it's, it's quite, um, that one's again, not probably an easy one to write. Yeah, were you surprised by the the way it all comes together. I was, okay. yep. yeah, I definitely was. I was too, and I thought that they did such a good job of making that feel believable, but also, it, you know, it's big, it's over the top, and you're sort of like, oh, it's, you know, it's for humor's sake, the way things come together. I don't want to spoil it sure, for anyone, sure, yeah. even though it's over a decade old, but. Um, we'll keep 30 years for spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's so entertaining the way all the storylines intersect and you sort of don't see it coming, but then it all makes perfect sense the way it un unfolds like that. So, yeah. What makes an effective protagonist? A few different things. Um, I think that primarily they have to be able to drive the action of the plot, right? Like you need a protagonist who can take action, who's willing to take action, or at least can be convinced to take action, otherwise your plot won't advance if he's not, he or she isn't doing something to pursue their goal. Um, and then I also think that they're sort of on the, on the you know, character side of things, there's certain things that we look for in a protagonist to help us get on board with them, right? To kind of help us align with them and be willing to go through the story with them. So there's, you know, the, the, cliche thing and the thing that writers hate to hear is that making your protagonist likable, right? But, you know, there's some truth to that. Even if your character isn't likable, I think they do need to be someone that we're willing to go along on this journey with, right? So they have to be at least engaging and entertaining enough for us to, you know, like to dislike them, right? Sure. So yeah, so I think those two, you know, they're kind of two prongs of that question, which is like what makes an effective protagonist plot-wise in the story, it has to be someone who can take action and who can um, who can do things that move the plot forward. Um, and then on the character development side of things, it's someone that we're willing to go along with as they go through this story. Yeah, I think even Stephen King said in On Writing that he didn't really like the character of Carrie, mm. which I actually like her, but mm -hmm. I, I think that he felt that she was compelling enough and real enough, and he saw some similarities in his town. Yeah, and um, 
So yeah, I mean, to invest that much time in a character that you don't think is actually that likable, mm -hmm. but other people saw there's something here. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, even if you don't, it's been a while since I read Carrie, but I think even if you don't like that character, even if it's not someone that you would hang out with, he does a really good job of creating empathy for that character, right? It's like she's in a terrible situation. She's being bullied at home and at school and, you know, she's awkward and doesn't fit in. And that, of course, is going to, even if we don't like her in a traditional sense, I think we feel for her, right? And and that's enough to get us on board and to want to know what she's going to do next, you know? Right, because that's an interesting theory of wanting to spend time with a character that we don't actually, we maybe if we met them in real life, we wouldn't actually want to sit next to them at the school lunch table. Right. I mean, that, that's, yeah, you know, that's and true. I can think of plenty of people that I wouldn't want to, but would I want to invest time in a story from that character's point of view? I guess, I guess, because we could try to find something that we could somehow connect with. Yeah, and that's that whole, you know, if you uh, walk a mile in a man's shoes, right? Um, you'll kind of understand what they're going through. And even if you don't agree with them, you can empathize, you can understand. Uh, actually, to bring it back to Crazy Stupid Love, I feel like that was another thing that that movie did really well. Even if, so none of those characters are unlikable, right? But they did such a good job of making us sort of care about and empathize with Steve Carell in the beginning so that he could then go on and become this kind of CAD-like divorced guy, right? So he's, you know, he becomes a womanizer for a short time in the film, and I think that could turn a lot of people off. But because they spent time in the beginning making us, you know, care about him and feel bad for him because his wife asks for a divorce in a crowded restaurant out of the blue, you know, that gets us, that sort of earns enough of our, our like love for him that we can, we know why he's doing what he's doing and we can watch him kind of do some not great stuff for a little while before, you know, he, he brings it back around and kind of redeems himself. And we see a lot of what he's, he's kind of being groomed mm -hmm. by this other guy yeah. who you know, he doesn't get it even from the jeans and the and the, he's like, you know, turn around, you have a mom, but like these are not those are not the right yeah. jeans for you. you know? Yes, yeah. And so yeah, he sort know. of reluctantly goes into that womanizer phase. Right. He thinks wearing these tennis shoes and these like dad jeans are okay, but because you know that's not he wasn't really setting out to be that person. Right. So right. I think you that's see that he's actually a good guy. Yeah. And he's doing it out of, you know, and then when you see the other, and I hope I'm not giving a spoiler away, but the other kind of divorced dad in the bar sipping on the drink, and he doesn't really have much of a role, mm -hmm. but you're like, oh, that's kind of the next incarnation of him. Like, yeah, you know, that's you want, you want Steve Carell to avoid becoming that guy. Like, no matter if you don't agree with what he's doing now, you sort of know why he's doing it. Sure. You yeah. feel for him. You, you want him to not be lonely and sad. <laughs> so sure. you're kind of willing for him to, you know, be, like you said, be groomed in that direction, even if it's maybe not the greatest direction. Naomi, can you explain what a story goal is? Sure. Um, the way I use it is really just that it's that ultimate goal that your sort of your whole story is structured around. So it's the thing that your protagonist is trying to achieve in the story. Um, story goal is just the easiest way to describe it, but it's that, you know, it's in Silence of the Lambs, it's Clarice trying to catch the serial killer Buffalo Bill. Her, that's her story goal, right? It's the um, plot thing that gives your entire story its structure. Is the story goal also the story engine? 
Uh, well, the character's pursuit of that story goal, I think, is what creates the engine in the story, right? So the protagonist trying to achieve that thing, that's what drives the story forward. It's what moves the plot. Um, so yeah, I think the story goal is a necessary part of that engine. Can you give us examples of story goals that work well, so effective ones, and then ones that don't work well? Sure. Um, so effective story goals will have some sort of external component, right? So they can be dramatized on screen in some way. Um, ineffective story goals are, are usually very internal and things that we can't see a character taking action toward. Um, we can't see them pursuing. You know, if you're writing a movie, it's it's going to be easier to, to write it, to structure it, if there's some sort of external action or a, at least a way for you to show us um, what the character is doing and, us, and for us to understand, you know, what they're doing. Um, let's see, uh, another thing that makes a story goal effective is if it's difficult enough to achieve that it will take the whole movie <laughs> to achieve, right? You don't want something so easy um, or so quick that it would be achieved in one scene or a couple of scenes because you need it to be difficult enough that your character um, can try to, you know, can attempt to achieve it over a hundred minutes or whatever. Um, and that difficulty can come from the goal itself can be difficult or it can also come from there's just so much conflict in the way, right, that your, your character has a hard time achieving it because there's something or someone trying to stop them. That, does that make sense? It does. So an internal goal is hard because we, we unless it's a novel, we, we can't really tell what's going on with the character. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, so in a, something that's very internal would be hard for you to, would probably be difficult to show on screen, right? Unless you can find a way to dramatize it externally. Um, I think the movie Short Term 12 is a good example of that. The the story goal is, I think it's sort of twofold in that movie, but part of it is um, one of the things that the character is going through is trying to open up, right? Um, to be more open emotionally, which seems like it would be hard to, to show on screen, right? Like how do you show someone struggling with that? Um, but I think they do a good job of of really clearly saying that it's it's if she can talk about what happened to her in the past. I think that's how the story goes. If she can talk about what happened to her, to her in the past to her fiance, then that's kind of the, you know, the, the milestone or the benchmark that we're looking for to indicate that she has achieved that goal. Um, so yeah, if it's a very internal thing, if you can find a way to indicate that, that it's being pursued and that it's been achieved, then you can, you know, that's dramatizing it. You can make it and, um, something that you can shape your movie around. And I think some actors are are really fantastic at showing a very closed off person. I mean, William Hurt was always great at playing somebody that you could tell there was a lot going on inside, but he wasn't letting it out. Mm -hmm. Probably would at some you know midpoint, but very contained and stifled. And and so I think there's certain certain actors that really can play to that kind of character. Yeah, and I think even with that though, um, you know, something like that, something like you know, if my goal is to learn how to open up <laughs> to other people, um, there are great actors who can play that struggle of like, I really want to open up, but I'm afraid to, or I can't bring myself to do it. Even that can only sustain, I think, so many scenes, right? And so it has to be something that you can also 
um, have other characters create conflict with that with your protagonist. You know, there has to be there have to be obstacles in their way or opposing forces that are making this difficult for them as well. If that if that makes sense. Why do you recommend the writer define the goal and the method separately? Oh, well, I think that that makes it easier to wrap your head around your your own story sometimes um, because the goal, the story goal, that thing that the protagonist is ultimately trying to achieve, it doesn't always imply or indicate the kind of action that your protagonist will be taking for most of the movie, right? So I think um, Hell or High Water is a good example of this. I don't know if you've seen that movie. <laughs> or we can talk about uh, Silence of the Lambs as well. Whatever one, yeah. Yeah, no, sorry, the, sorry no, that's okay. Yeah. The, the goal um, sometimes is you know a very definite end point that your character is working towards, which is great because that gives you the framework for your story. And again, you know, it gives you that um, the thing that your audience is tracking. So we know where the character is headed and that allows us to sort of understand, are they making progress? Or are they having setbacks? But the method, I think, you know, is, is sort of the missing piece sometimes if you're trying to, uh, you know, break down your story and figure out like what happens moment to moment. Because sometimes the, the method is, um, different or or not implied by the story goal itself. And then a lot of times the method is actually the entertaining thing about the story. It's like the thing that people want to see in the movie. So I know these are examples that, <laughs> that are foreign to you, but um, Silence of the Lambs, like her goal is to catch the serial killer, right? But the method she's using is working with Hannibal Lecter, which is fascinating. Sure. That relationship is like part of the, you know, the entertainment hook of the, of the movie. So that's what we're excited to watch. It's also the chase and trying to catch that serial killer. But the, the really, the scenes that everyone remembers are the ones where she's, dealing with Hannibal Lecter and sort of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, you know, mentally and um, matching wits with him. Right, and he's baiting her yeah. and kind of showing that he's got the upper hand. Right, basically. right, and he's pushing her in ways that other people don't push her and sort of forcing her to, you know, figure out that she's she can, she can handle it and she can do it and she can, you know, catch the serial killer. It's a great relationship. Uh, another example, Hell or High Water, just really quickly since I brought it up. Um, his ultimate goal is to get the, I think it's $40,000 to the bank by such whatever the deadline is, right? Like that's the ultimate goal. That's what he's working towards over the course of the movie. But the method that he's using is he has a plan to rob a series of small town Texas banks, right? So that, again, that's like where the entertainment value comes from is we're watching him pull off this carefully, you know, planned series of bank heists in small Texas towns, um, that's entertaining. And that if you were writing that movie and you just knew, okay, this guy needs to get this money to the bank on time, that gives you the sort of big picture framework, but it's helpful for you, the writer, to figure out like, okay, but what's the, what's the method? What's the more specific method that he's using to do that? Because then that gives you that act to action, right? That you can go, oh, okay, so he's going to do it by coming up with this plan to rob all these banks in quick succession. Okay, how's he going to do that? How many would he have to do in a day? And it, it gives you more to work with when you're coming up with the sort of like scene by scene plotting of your story, you know? Why don't we ever hear about writing a story and coming up with a goal first? Like, it seems like all we do is just want to come up with this character and we're kind of, as you say, we're really in love with like the first act, mm -hmm. but the actual story goal, it seems like falls short. 
from any new writers or no? Do you think so? Um, I'm not sure. I, I feel like, you know, you can sort of come at a story from a lot of different ways. And no matter which angle you, you come to that idea from, no matter which kind of aspect of it inspired you to want to write it, you still have to fill in all of the other elements in order to kind of like have a complete thing that can work, right? Um, I wonder if I wonder if it feels that way because a lot of times the story goal feels sort of like dry <laughs> plot, very you know plot uh, specific and dry. Um, and the interesting part to a lot of writers is coming up with the the character and the you know the person that we're going to go with on this journey and coming up with those like traits that will be fun to write. Um, and this maybe the story goal just feels like a a thing that I have to figure out that I, you know, don't really, I'm not inspired by. I'm, that could be it. Well, I know off camera you mentioned the movie Hustle, mm -hmm. the, and we both saw it and loved it. Is the story goal the Adam Sandler goal, or is the basketball player's goal? Or are there several story goals? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I, when I talk about the story goal, I specifically mean the protagonist story goal, because that's really what the movie is structured around, right? Like that's the the character wanting that thing is what gives you that spine of the story, um, that sort of main through line, you might have heard it called. Um, so I would call the story goal in, in that movie Adam Sandler's goal, which if I were going to articulate it, I'm not sure I remember all the details of it, but it was like to have this basketball player be picked up, I'm not a sports person, <laughs> be picked up by a team, right? Um, did that, does that sound right? Yeah, I think it was, if I remember correctly, was he scouting out other players and nothing was panning out? Either somebody was too old or whatever. Yeah. And then he sees this guy at like a street game, mm -hmm. if I remember. Yeah. And so it's kind of like this unexpected, he gets his wish and now he's got to convince this guy to come to the States. Yeah. So, so if we were going to kind of like you know, look at that from the 40,000 foot view of, of the big picture of the story. Like his story goal is the thing he's trying to achieve by the end of it. Um, and in that story, I would say it's, it that story goal is formed after he meets that guy, right? So he is sort of down on his luck. He feels like he's got one last chance to kind of make his career happen. We're talking about the Adam Sandler character. Sure. Um, unexpectedly, he sees this like, you know, amazing miracle of a player and he's like, that's my chance. If I can get that guy a deal, and I think initially it's a deal with the team that he works for and then they kind of go out on their own or something like that, right? But if I can get that guy a deal, then basically my career will be saved. So that becomes his, and again, I, I wish I remembered all the details of that story, but I think that that's kind of it. That becomes his story goal then. That's the thing that he's working towards for the rest of the movie. So the story goal isn't something that the character starts the movie with. It's formed in act one. So they you know, start the story sort of in their normal world or their ordinary world or whatever. Um, and somewhere along the way in act one, they, they form this story goal that is the thing that drives the rest of the movie. So then pursuing that goal across act two and into act three and then resolving it in act three, that's, you know, that's the rest of your movie. Right. And if I remember correctly, I think his back is against the wall because was the initial coach or owner of the team like a mentor and then the dynamic changes and now there's a, a new person at the helm. Yeah. And he's trying to, and he's not really fitting in well. Yeah, so that's part of the setup that that Ben Foster character, he becomes the team owner, I think, or something like that. 
inherited or whatever. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so he's his, kind of like the bratty son that gets yes, it. Yes, yeah. exactly. So the, the mentor character, Adam Sandler's mentor character, was the owner. He was the older, the patriarch of that family. He passes away, and then the son inherits it or inherits that role anyway. Um, and he and Adam Sandler don't get along, so then that that, like you said, it puts Adam Sandler's back up against the wall. And so then, you know, that's when he's sort of in in a tough place where he has, okay, I have one more chance. I've got one more chance to sort of save my career. Otherwise, I'm done um, because those circumstances have changed. And then that's when he sees the, the basketball player and forms that story goal. How does a writer create conflict? Uh, well, conflict is created by two opposing forces. So if we're talking about the main conflict in a story, right, that's the protagonist trying to pursue their goal and then whatever sort of main force of opposition is getting in their way. So it could be, um, well, it can manifest in a lot of different ways, but it's whatever that main thing is that's stopping the protagonist or not allowing them to easily and quickly achieve that goal. Yeah, and it seems like, let's say with Hustle, which we were mm -hmm. talking about earlier, the Adam Sandler movie, it's a pretty clear, you know, idea of what that conflict is but if you look at let's say Forrest Gump an older version of a movie um, it's not actually that clear there's many things he's encountering yeah and that's another reason that I would I would call Forrest Gump a sort of an advanced an advanced craft story right because it's pretty non-traditional it's you know you have one guy and I don't know that I would say he has a very clear end point that he's working toward it's um, a little bit episodic we're sort of watching him kind of go through history different notable points in history and kind of accidentally showing up in the right place at the wrong time or whatever. Um, so that is a, that's one of those stories that I think would be a difficult one for a newer writer to try to make work because if you don't have that sort of like standard framework of character pursuing a goal to give you that spine and kind of that main conflict to rely on, then you have to use other tools in your toolkit to create enough conflict and enough engagement to keep us invested, right? To keep us engaged in the story and sort of not checking out and, and turning it off. So I think Forrest Gump does that through like, you know, just the sort of novelty of the character, right? Like he's what, what's that guy going to do next? Like, where's he going to show up? And what, what um, you know, famous moment in history are we going to show it, see him pop up in? So I think that's part of the appeal of that story. And then also within, within each kind of little segment of story, I do think that there is conflict. It's not like I'm saying that it has no conflict. But uh, I think it happens, you know, in sort of, like, instead of happening kind of big picture across the whole movie, if I'm remembering it correctly, it happens more in self-contained segments and then you also have these these like longer storylines of like his um, love for Jenny right his relationship for Jenny which weaves in and out of the other stuff that's happening if if I'm remembering that right yeah no that's excellent and and then if you look at crash which I know we brought up earlier that is like nothing but conflict yeah which is the through line of basically the story that ties all the characters and different stories together. Yeah, so that one has so many, I think it has like three or four intersecting storylines, right? And each one has its own sort of main conflict that we're following. Um, and then part of the appeal of that too is seeing how those storylines intersect because that's kind of the, the, the point of the story or the concept of it. How can goals of the protagonist and antagonist oppose each other to create conflict? Uh, well, there's a lot of different ways. Um, I think that, you know, if you look at 
if you look at the movies that you like, <laughs> you'll you'll probably see that they the main conflict falls into a few different categories. Um, it's not always the same from movie to movie. Um, sometimes the protagonist has a goal and the antagonist is trying to stop them. Sometimes the antagonist has a goal and the protagonist is trying to stop them. Um, sometimes they both want the same thing and so they're competing for you know a, a prize or a, a thing that only one of them can have. Um, and then sometimes they just happen to be, you know, the protagonist and antagonist are just two characters who each have a goal that happen to conflict with each other. So they're getting in each other's way. Um, those are kind of the ones that I've noticed are the, are the most common versions of that. Sure. And then if we go back to Bridesmaids, that there is, it seems like all of them have a common goal, which is to be accepted amongst their peer group. Yeah, well, if we're talking about the story goal, the more sort of like plot specific um, thing that the protagonist is trying to achieve. So it's actually um, the antagonist is Helen, which is the, the Rose Byrne character, right? And she wants to take over our protagonist's friendship. So she's the, the rival for this best friendship, right? That Annie, our protagonist, has her lifelong best friend. Um, so when Annie discovers that, about the Helen character, that's when she forms her goal to stop the antagonist, right? So it's just sort of, you know, it's a little bit of, um, it might sound very technical or very like theory heavy, but I think these are just tools that help you understand your own story and understand how your particular story works. So it's not that I'm, I certainly don't mean that you have four different types of conflict and you have to use one of them. I think if you, you know, if you've come up with an idea that you're trying to develop, trying to look at it through these four types of conflict, right, or these four kind of like conflict dynamics, if you can see that your conflict falls into one of those categories, it just helps you understand like, oh, okay, so if mine is like this, then that means, you know, it gives you it gives you a little bit of guidance in terms of, okay, so that means the antagonist has to come up with their goal first so that then the protagonist can find out about it and form her story goal, right? And that gives you a little bit of guidance in terms of like, okay, so that's the order that things need to happen in so I can break down the plot of my movie that way and it helps you write it, so. Right, and it seems like in, in some films, the antagonist doesn't really turn out to be the antagonist at all. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe that's just how I'm seeing it. And then others, it's clearly that was the antagonist and they were defeated or they, they were win whatever way. So Silence of the Lambs, we know that definitely he's the antagonist, but in in, in Bridesmaids, mm, it's kind of not, you know, maybe Helen is not totally. It's just that they both had their own sort of needs and they were just getting in the way. Yeah, and I think that that, you can look at that too as being like appropriate to the tone or the style of what you're writing, right? Because it might have felt weird if Helen, that antagonist was, you know, had seriously kind of like evil designs on Annie and all that stuff, right? So the humor in that keeps it, you know, that that's also a guide in terms of like what types of conflict are going to work in this. Um, so those two characters, you probably have a little bit more empathy for for Helen than you do for <laughs> Buffalo Bill. You, even though you learn why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, Helen is more of a real character and the comedy comes from, you know, the, these kind of like wacky situations that our protagonist gets herself into, you know. Sure. And we look at maybe Helen, it's more about vanity and sort of serving her own ego. And, yeah. But, but then you find out that 
actually she's very empty and so it's not it's you, you feel for her in the end like, yeah they you want to hate her and then you realize i don't actually hate you yeah. yeah they do a good job actually of revealing that she is not sort of the i mean she is sort of shallow and and focused on status and and all that through the movie but they do reveal that she has a you know, an emotional need of her own. She's lonely and she's in an unfulfilling marriage. And so you kind of end up growing, I think, to at least feel for her, if not like her more by the end. And she's still the, you know, when we're talking about protagonist and antagonist, we're really just talking about like the mechanics of the story, not necessarily that she needs to feel like a villain or like a, you know, an evil character or even that you can't like her. You know, you can like the character who is the sort of antagonistic force. We're just talking about the the way the elements of the story work together to kind of, you know, create that that um, story engine or that, that um, spine of the story that we were talking about earlier. I think we spoke about this briefly in our last interview, but what are the four common ways characters challenge protagonists? Oh, um... Well, I usually think about that in terms of like the supporting characters that are sort of around, you know, the protagonist. And again, I, you know, these are not, <laughs> not limited to four. There certainly could be many other ways, but I think that these are the patterns that I've noticed. Um, a lot of times the supporting characters will sort of help the protagonist through conflict, right? Like they create some sort of conflict with the protagonist, um, but that conflict or that pain that they're bringing into the protagonist's life is one of those sort of forcing um, mechanisms that that force that protagonist to grow and learn the lesson that they need to learn, right? Um, so the four that I've noticed are like, um, I think I call them like aspirational model. So giving your conflict or sorry, giving your protagonist um, a, a model of what they would like to do or like to achieve or like to be. And that can create conflict because it you know, creates a situation where your protagonist is unhappy with where they are and they're striving for more. Um, there's also the cautionary tale. So creating, you know, creating, it's almost the opposite of the, of the other one where um, it's showing your protagonist what could happen if they continue down the road that they're on, right? So this is, you know, sort of like that, that side character in, and this is such a minor, minor role, but in Crazy Stupid Love, that sad divorced dad at the bar, right? Like that's a cautionary tale. He does not want to become that guy. So he's going to continue on striving to be the womanizer <laughs> that he's being groomed to be because it's that, that cautionary tale. Um, it's a reminder to him. Um, and then uh, there's also, uh, I forget what I've labeled them, but um, you have sort of the uh, mentor character, or the person that helps your character learn that they're capable or they have it in them to do the thing that they're trying to do. Um, and that doesn't always have to be, you know, a nice mentor. It can be someone who pushes through um, tough love or through conflict, through challenging your character. But it's But the ultimate effect is that it's forcing them to grow and to accept that they are strong enough, capable enough, smart enough, whatever. Um, and then what's the fourth one, actually? Oh, so a new worldview? Oh, yeah. So that's challenging the way your protagonist sees the world, right? So um, a lot of times the transformation that your character goes through is is a is an it starts internally and then it manifests externally. So sometimes there's a supporting character that demonstrates the new way of thinking that maybe ultimately your character will adopt or 
it challenges their own way of thinking enough that they grow and they make that change that they need to make to sort of have a new attitude about the world or a new perspective, a new um, life philosophy that that was the sort of the point of the story, right? That was the growth that they needed at the beginning. Yeah, so I think in Bridesmaids was Melissa McCarthy, that one scene. Yeah. <laughs> so great. So she kind of gives her a you know, kick in the pants um, and, and does it in a, in a sort of a sweet, tough love way. Yeah, yeah, that's a great scene. So she comes in and she's like, what did she say? It's something like, you know, the world isn't gonna like hand it to you. You have to go out there and take it. The world's telling you it's here to be taken or something like that. I can't remember the exact words, but but yeah, she, she gives her that. It's very funny, but it's also uh, the exact sort of like tough love message that Annie needs at that point. Sure, and she's literally on the couch, yeah. like, you know, not just metaphorically on the couch. She's on the couch feeling sorry for herself, and she's kind of, I think she picks her up, doesn't she, and throw her over her shoulder or <laughs> Maybe, something, yeah. but yeah. And then with Hustle, I can't really remember. I feel like there were mentor characters that were helping um, the Adam Sandler character. Yeah, well, what's interesting, I think, in Hustle is that, um, you know, you don't have to have a, I guess, sort of like archetypal mentor for this, to for this, like, sort of role to come into play. Um, any character, yeah, any supporting character that sort of helps your protagonist along that, you know, arc of growth, right, can can fill any of these roles. So what's great about Hustle is those two guys, it's really their relationship. They learn from each other, you know, so even though they're not like, you know, technically what I would call like a mentor to each other, that's not kind of their role throughout the whole movie, maybe. In terms of helping each of them grow and and sort of get to the point that they need to be in order to succeed in the movie, they do learn from each other. Like the basketball player learns that, you know, there's some people you can rely on. You can actually depend on someone. They're going to come through for you. Uh, and I kind of forget what Adam Sandler learns from the basketball player, but it's, you know, I think it's complementary to that, right? It's like... Um, if you keep trying, keep working, you can like, you know, succeed and not let people down or something like that. So um, talking about that Melissa McCarthy character, quick, quick point about that. What's great about that character is that that speech she gives, right, to Annie doesn't come out of the blue. So that was the last thing I wanted to mention about her was that that character has that worldview from the beginning. So she, Melissa McCarthy, has that sort of attitude about you go out and you grab life, you you do it, you take what you want or you take the kind of life you want, you know, you don't sit back, you don't sit on the couch and like let it pass you by. If you want something, you go out and you try for it. If you fail, no big deal. If you look like a fool, <laughs> no big deal. But you you have to try in order to get what you want. And so I think if, you know, the bad version of that relationship in that movie would have been if Melissa McCarthy was just a nice bridesmaid who came along at the right moment in the end to tell Annie what she needed to know, right? That would have felt sort of unearned and tacked on. Um, but because we saw that, you know, we didn't know where that was going from the beginning, but we saw that that Melissa McCarthy character was that person all the way through. So when she de delivers that message to Annie right when she needs it, it makes sense. It feels emotionally true, you know? Sure, sure. And just going back to Hustle real quick, mm -hmm. it seems like also, too, they both respect each other because they know their families are very important to them. Yeah. And so I think they both have sort of earned that. Um, and they become almost mentors to each other yeah. in some way. Yeah, I think they do. They they sort of, because they each go into it, I think, with certain 
preconceived notions about the other, right? Like our basketball player thinks that Adam Sandler's just this rich American who can kind of like, you know, he's got the the wallet of the the team behind him and he can do whatever. And over time they learn, they kind of learn how desperate <laughs> each one is, but they learn what's really motivating each of them and they bond over that, right? Because they each have a family to, like you said, each have a family to support. They learn that they each are kind of like, on their, you know, this is this is it. This is the last chance that they have to kind of like make this big thing happen. So as those, you know, truths are revealed about each of them, it bonds them. It makes them grow closer, uh, which helps that sort of like partnership and help, helps them accomplish the thing. Yeah. What are stakes? <laughs> Something that confuses a lot of uh, a lot of writers. It's um, so stakes are very generally like whatever hangs in the balance um, with regard to what your character is trying to achieve. So a lot of movies are very clear external, you know, life and death stakes. Right? If your character doesn't um, escape the serial killer, then they will die. Right? The, your protagonist will die. So then it's life and death stakes. Um, so it's whatever consequence would would come and would come to bear if your protagonist fails to achieve their story goal. That's sort of how I would define it. Why are stakes important? Uh, well, I think stakes are important because that's if if there's nothing at stake, then the story doesn't matter, right? If um, if your protagonist is trying to achieve a thing, but nothing, there won't be any consequence to it, then. I don't know if your audience will remain engaged in the story, right? Because we we sort of, if we if we understand that a, that um, a series of events doesn't matter, it doesn't have any consequence to it. It's inconsequential. I think most of us would check out. Could be entertaining for a while, but eventually we'll be like, okay, I you know I don't really care about the ending of it. So whatever's at stake in the story is really what sort of gets us to care about the outcome. Yeah, and I know, again, we use Hustle as an example, mm -hmm. and I think that's what got the film for me. That's why I liked it. I'm not really into sports, but the the, the stakes that were involved, and it was numerous times. Yeah. That was what was so great, is you thought you got through one hurdle, and then there was another one presented. Yeah, and I think, you know, all of these elements sort of go hand in hand, right? They all depend on each other to kind of create the effect that you want them to create on the audience. So what's great about Hustle is, like, it... It's not life or death stakes. It's not that you know high stakes of a of a movie, but you feel so much for that character that what's important to him is important to you. So that you know what this career means to him. It's the only thing he's ever done. It's what he loves. It's you know what he's dedicated his whole life to. There's the feeling that if he sort of washes out now, his whole life will be meaningless, or you know he'll have invested all this time in something that ultimately didn't matter, had no out, no uh, consequence. So all of that is wrapped up in what's at stake for him. So what I was describing earlier, sort of the external stakes of like, what's the consequence that will happen if your character fails, right? That's usually in a movie, there's something external at stake. So life and death stakes or like somebody's safety or, um, you know, losing the house or, or what have you. But then there's also the sort of internal stakes of it, the emotional stakes of it, which is really like what it means to your character. So, you know, it's important for the Adam Sandler character to um, achieve that goal because of all that stuff that it represents to him. And that's that, I think, is the more emotional side of things. And that's what really gets us like emotionally invested in a story, you know? 
Right. I think there's like one scene in the beginning or close to it where Adam Sandler's on the phone with someone. He's like, 50 year old guys don't have dreams. We have nightmares and panic attacks or something. <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. Cool they that. do such a good job of like layering that stuff in, right? Of, of just exactly what does it mean if he fails to, you know, get this last career thing? Because it, it would be very easy for that movie to sort of hit all of the the plot beats that we expect, but to feel empty, right? Like that would have been the the bad version of that movie of like, you know, a near retirement guy has one last chance to get a player signed. And you could see that playing out in a way that the plot would make sense, but because they went the extra, you know, the extra mile in terms of like developing that character and what it all meant to him, that made it, you know, I loved that movie. It made it very emotional for me instead of just being like, oh, this is a fun movie about guys playing basketball. It was much more about the Adam Sandler character and sort of, you know, that was like a redemption story for him. It was like, my life hasn't been a waste. I'm not too old to accomplish things. You know, all of those things I think were layered into that movie and that's what made it, that's what actually made it a movie that I would recommend to people versus one that I watch and forget about, you know? And and then without giving away too much, the basketball player has his own stakes. Mm -hmm. And then you also see that part of the stakes for Adam Sandler is proving to the basketball player that I'm, I'm actually not going to let you down. Yeah, that's what was really great about that movie too, is that relationship between those two guys. So it's very much an underdog sports movie. And the two of them are sort of the only, you know, the, the only two, the only person that each has in their life that really believes in them in a way that, that sort of matters and they can help each other. And so they're two underdogs sort of working together to achieve this big thing that nobody thinks they can achieve. So yes, that that made me root for them. <laughs> you know what? I love that. Two underdogs working together. That's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, that's what works about it. How do we know the stakes are high enough for the audience to be emotionally invested? Mm, that's a good. It's a good question, and I think that's one of those things that's a little bit, um, you know, trial and error in your in your writing. You do what you can to um, create the stakes in your story, external and internal. Um, try to plan them out in a way that that you feel like will be enough to get the audience invested. But that is definitely one of those things that, you know, in completing the first draft, sometimes you have somebody read it and they're like, I don't really understand why this matters or I don't know why I should care about this story. And then you know that the stakes <laughs> aren't coming through, right? They may be high enough, but they may just not be conveyed on the page in a way that the whoever read it, you know, can understand why they should care. So there's both the aspect of like, you know, planning as you're developing your story thinking through what's at stake and why this is going to matter and what it means to the character and so that's why the audience will care about it. Um, thinking through all of those questions and, and making sure that's in your story, that's half the battle. And then the other half is actually figuring out how to put it on the page in a way that your reader can pick it up, right, and can understand and can feel sort of what's at stake. Yeah, I think that was what was my problem with Bridesmaids when I heard about it and it mm. came out and everybody was raving and I was turning on the radio and, oh, Bridesmaids, and I'm like, oh, another one of these female on female hating each other <laughs> and competing. I don't want to see that. And it's it's not, it's so well done and mm -hmm. there's, you you really see, okay, no, this is, there's a lot more layers to this. Yeah, and actually you bring, you bring up a good point because seeing Helen come through in the end and sort of change a little bit and seeing that she and Annie don't end the movie totally at odds with each other, I think that that was really important to 
to the the sort of you know overall bigger picture of that movie, which was like, it's not about women competing against each other. It's actually about the female friendship, right? And so even the fact that the protagonist and antagonist can come through the end of this experience learning enough about each other to kind of not hate each other and not be working against each other, that was an important lesson in the movie too. Can you help us understand the difference between the stakes for the protagonist and the antagonist? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I think each character needs to have something at stake. We probably need to understand what's at stake for the protagonist a little bit more, right? Because we're entering the story through that character and their experience of it is really what we're sort of tracking and writing along with through the entire movie. Um, so just in general, I would say that, you know, the protagonist stakes are probably going to be more developed. Um, both externally and internally, we're probably going to spend more time understanding those stakes, um, establishing them in the movie, and then you know escalating them across the the movie. Um, but I do think that the antagonist should have something at stake as well. Otherwise, um, I think that's when you get you know kind of like I mentioned earlier, you get maybe one of those movies that hits certain plot beats but feels a little bit empty. If we don't understand why the antagonist is doing what they're doing as well, even if it's in very broad strokes, you know, um, I think it can feel a little, a little empty, a little cartoony, or even a little bit sort of like it doesn't have emotional logic, you know? Sure. Did you see the movie, the, the, is it the bookshop? No, okay. I don't think so. Yeah, okay. What I was that one? That one. Um, it was so good. It was with Patricia Clarkson, hmm. who's like this sort of wealthy woman who has started this art society in her town. And then a new younger woman comes in and opens up this bookstore. Mm. And that causes Patricia Clarkson standing in the community. Like, like, who is this? And you're doing this in my town? I'm sorry. And then the young woman starts to put these beautiful book displays and everybody comes in and they love their books, the bookstore. And then she does Lolita, mm. the book uh, by Nabokov in the, in the um, window. And that's Patricia Clarkson's in. And you will not have this in my town. <laughs> but really her, her motive is you won't show me up. Mm -hmm. that, that's really what yeah. it's about. And it's so well done. And um, it, it's, it's about this sort of you see each character stakes mm -hmm. uh, one just wants to do it because i forgot what the reason was she needed something in her life and this gave her joy and then the patricia clarkson it was more about you know her image and power and yeah. the two the two that uh well you bring up a good point i haven't seen that movie i will add it to my list but um but i think you bring up a good point which is you know when the conflict is more uh, character-based or more sort of like emotional rather than physical um, I think we probably need to develop the stakes more, right, in order to understand sort of why are these characters in conflict? Why are they taking the actions that they're taking? Whereas if you have something very external, very, you know, action-y or like horror movies are often high stakes, they're, they're life and death situations, but because it's such an external physical uh, conflict, we understand easily why this is important, right? We understand it's a life and death situation, so you don't really have to explain it <laughs> as much or develop it as much. It's still useful, I think, if even in um, movies that have very clear, you know, external stakes, if you develop the internal, the meaning of it as well, right? Because that helps us get sort of more emotionally invested in the story. Um, but yeah, the I think the story that you brought up, that bookshop, is a good example of having 
um, you know, the conflict is really, it's character-based and it's, um, it's in, not internal, but it's, um, it's not a physical sort of conflict between the two of them. They have these like big emotional stakes for each of them. They're standing in the town or their reputation or whatever. And so you have to develop those so that the audience understands what's motivating them to do the things they're doing because we don't immediately understand why someone would you know, take those actions that they're taking in the story, you know? What is the central dramatic question? Well, the central dramatic question is just another way to sort of phrase that idea that your story is about one person trying to achieve one thing, right? So it's, again, it's another tool to kind of help you wrap your brain around your own story. Um, so whatever your, your protagonist is pursuing, their story goal over the course of that story, um, if, you, if you phrase that as a question, that is the central dramatic question, and then that's the question that you're trying to answer over the course of the story, right? So, you know, for, for Silence of the Lambs, my go-to example, it's, it's will Clarice catch the serial killer? Um, that's, that's the question that we're waiting for the answer to that the story is hopefully going to answer by the end of it. Otherwise, we'll be unsatisfied. What happens when the central dramatic question is answered? then your movie's basically over. <laughs> so, you know, that that it gives us that framework for your story, so it's the thing that we're tracking. Um, and then once that question is answered, it feels to us like your story is resolved, right? So there might be a little bit of wrap up after that. There might be, you know, some an emotional button to put on the story or like a subplot or something that needs to be tied up or you might need a scene to show us sort of what's the character going to do next? Where is their life going from here? But pretty much when that question is answered, that's when the audience feels like, ah, oh, okay, this, this thing that I've been watching is now coming to an end, right? Like this is the end of it. Well, if we look at a lot of, let's say, tentpole movies, there's probably going to be a resolution unless there's a sequel planned mm -hmm. and then they want to kind of keep you hanging. But some movies don't seem like they always answer. They, there's, there's, a, there's a vagueness to them. Yeah, I don't. I don't think a you know a movie has to answer every question that it brings up, but that central dramatic question, we want some feeling of resolution, right? So I do think that there are movies that leave it ambiguous, and that's the point. Um, but I think that it has to be clear that that is the point, right? So then we feel like okay, so this experience of exploring or trying to get the answer to this question, maybe we couldn't answer it, and that's the point of it. And so that gives you that feeling of even if the question isn't resolved, that story is resolved because we've gotten to a point where we're like, ah, okay, so here's how this ends. We don't know how that story is, you know, how that question is answered. So always know your audience is probably much smarter than you give them credit for, but then if you end it in too much of a vague way, it may just be that the, the writer didn't have a clear view themselves. Yeah, I think in most cases, um, even if you leave it open, if it's a sort of a, you know, you don't fully answer the question or you leave it an ambiguous ending and that's the point of your story, it has to feel deliberate to your audience, otherwise, they will feel like you didn't do your job, right? Like they'll they'll sort of feel like you left them hanging unintentionally. And I think you want, you always want your audience to feel like they're in good hands. You want them to feel like you are, um, you know what you're doing and you're telling them a very specific story in a very specific way. And the things that they're feeling were orchestrated by you, you know what I mean? And so even if you don't give them that like nice, tidy, neat, you know, wrapped up thing in the end, 
they need to know that that was your choice and not accidental. What if the writer can't figure out what the central dramatic question is? Um, well, I, I don't think that there's necessarily like one, you know, right answer that you're, you have to figure out exactly what that question is, otherwise your story doesn't work. Again, it's more of a tool to kind of help you and give you a framework for your story and understand what your audience is um, tracking in the story, right? So it's kind of a way to get everybody on the same page. Um, but I think just thinking about what is my protagonist trying to achieve by the end of this, um, answering that question of who wants what in this story, and then um, turning that into a question is kind of the way you get your central dramatic question. So it's knowing what your audience, sorry, it's knowing what you want your audience to track. That's the question that you're, that you're trying to pose by the end of act one, if that makes sense. Well, can we have examples of oh, sure. central dramatic questions in different films? Sure. So um, I think the central dram dramatic question in Crazy Stupid Love, right, would be, um, actually, I think in that movie, it's, it's something along the lines of like, what kind of guy will Cal decide to be, right? It's because he's kind of at a crossroads in his life where he's been asked for a divorce. He doesn't know... I think that he even says, like, I, he doesn't know who he is as a father and as a husband, and um, that's part of being misguided <laughs> by the Ryan Gosling character is Cal's at a loss. He's sort of adrift, and he doesn't know which direction to go now that his life as he knows it is sort of ending. Um, and so I think, the, if I'm remembering it right, the central dramatic question in that movie is, like, what kind of what kind of guy will Cal, or what kind of man will Cal choose to be? And so we see him kind of navigate that question over the course of the movie, right? Like he sort of gets taken one direction by Ryan Gosling, and then around the middle of the movie, he realizes, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't who I want to be, or this isn't doing me any favors. It's not getting me the thing that I ultimately want, which is my wife. Um, so again, I, I'm not... 100% sure that I'm remembering that movie correctly, but I think that you could look at it that way, that that's the question we're, we're sort of waiting for him to answer by the end of it. Sure, and, and can he still be a good guy despite bad things happening to him and, yeah. and show that at the core he's actually a great person? Yeah, and it's part of his character arc too, right, of choosing, like, ultimately the lesson I think that he learns in that movie is the thing that he says when he stands up in front of uh, his son's middle school graduation where he's like, when you find the one, you don't give up. You keep fighting for them, right? So that's the kind of guy that he's decided he's going to be by the end of the movie is he's, you know, he's not going to be this womanizer who goes out and sleeps with all, every woman he can. He knows who he's in love with. He knows what he wants is to, you know, to have that relationship. And so he's just going to keep trying. So even if you don't know the outcome, you keep trying for the one that you, that you really love, right? So that's kind of the lesson that he learns at the end of it. And then for Silence of the Lambs? Yeah, so that one's a lot more straightforward. You have a nice, clear <laughs> external goal in that one. Um, so the central dramatic question there is, will Clarice catch the serial killer, right? Because that's everything that's set up and give, the context that we're given in Act 1 is like, you have Clarice, you have a serial killer on the loose, uh, she's the only one or she's she's one person who has sort of a special in to get help to catch that serial killer. So that's the goal that's formed by the end of Act 1 is like, I'm going to try to catch that serial killer. So if we 
just turn that into a question. It's will she catch that serial killer? And that is what the audience is watching and waiting for the answer to. And then to go back to the Forrest Gump example, I know we're using it a lot, but that one, it seems like that's a little unclear to me. Yeah. And, and again, I haven't seen that movie in so long that I'm not 100% sure on how everything plays out in it, but it does feel to me like that is a much more episodic story. Um, I wonder if I rewatched it, if, and again, you know, there, there are moments that I remember out of it, but I don't remember the whole story. I wonder if the Jenny relationship is actually kind of the spine of that story. Um, and so it could be, again, I'd, I'd be guessing, but it could be that the, the central dramatic question has something to do with whether he'll have a relationship with her. But again, I'm not 100% sure on that one. Why do you put the central dramatic question in between act one and act two? Oh, well, you know, if we look at sort of the the basic structure of a movie, you know, we typically talk about it in three act structure. And that's really just um, how the pursuit of the goal breaks down. So in act one, because really the the story of your movie is the story of this the goal and the pursuit of this goal, right? Like that's what creates the through line in your story. So act one, that goal is created. Act two, the goal is pursued. And then act three, it's resolved or not, right? So they get the goal or they don't. So that the central dramatic question is basically by the end of act one, we have all of the context that we need in order to understand what the protagonist is trying to do. And what they're trying to do is answering that question. So that's why the central dramatic question is sort of solidified or asked for the audience at the end of act one. And then the meat of the movie is watching them try to answer it across act two and act three. What is the purpose of act one? Well, act one gives us all of the context that we need in order to understand the story that we're about to watch um, and understand, you know, it, it basically sets up the who wants what of, of your movie. So, you know, if we look at each movie as being a story of someone wants something, uh, wants it badly, you know, goes after it against big conflict, great opposition, um, then act one sets up all of those pieces, right? So it tells us who, it tells us what they want, it tells us why they want it, and it tells us what they're up against. So all of those pieces that sort of create the foundation of the story or that like story engine that we were talking about earlier, that's what act one does. It sets up all of those things so that when we launch into act two or that like act two adventure, you might've heard it called, when we begin that, we have all of the information that we need in order to understand who are we watching, what are they trying to do, what are they up against, um, you know, why do they want it so badly? Like all of that's been established so that we can just watch everything escalate in Act Two. Does that make sense? It does. And so, as we talked about earlier, a lot of people have a great idea, and maybe the Act One is really strong, but then subsequent acts seems like. It's very murky, and, mm -hmm. and that's where the outline would help them. Yeah, and I think um, just knowing that you know Act One is is sort of set up. It's where you set up all of that context, um, and then understanding that Act Two is escalation. So you have all those pieces in place in Act One, and then Act Two is just playing with them and sort of forcing them to butt up against each other and create you know bigger and bigger conflicts and higher and higher stakes. That's where 
you know, that's the fun of act two is watching how everything that you've set up in act one, watching how that blossoms now, you know, how or explodes. <laughs> what mistakes do writers often make in act one? Um, well, I think the the probably, you know, big bucket, <laughs> maybe a lot of different things fall into this, but the, the main thing is um, not setting up all of the context that we need, right? So not clearly establishing those those foundation pieces of the story, those you know main elements that we need to understand and appreciate act two. So it's the protagonist, it's their story goal, it's where the conflict is coming from, that main conflict or the antagonist, and it's the, the main thing that's at stake for the protagonist, right? So all of those pieces have to be in place in act one. And when, um, when they're not properly established, I mean, I think that's the, that's the most common kind of mistake that, that writers make in act one. What mistakes do writers make in act two? Oh, act two is so wide open, right? It's, it's the escalation of your story and it's watching the thing that you've set up, it's watching it play out, but it can go in so many different directions, right? Um, I think maybe if I had to name one thing, probably the biggest would mistake would be, no, I have to, I have to do two. So <laughs> the first one is uh, not having their protagonist pursue the goal consistently and urgently, right? Because that's really what moves your story forward is the protagonist trying to achieve that thing. Um, so that's a big one. And then I would say maybe the other big one, and this is kind of connected, is not escalating things. So it, sort of hitting the same note over and over, um, not intensifying the conflict, not raising the stakes, because we want things to, to grow, right? We want the conflict to sort of double back on itself and compound and things to get harder and more intense and to feel more important and more urgent for the protagonist. That's, you know, the progression of act two should, should have that sort of um, building feeling to it. And so I think that's probably the other, the other big one is maybe hitting the same, the same intensity level or re, you know, reworking the same conflict without um, making things harder or making things more important or urgent, yeah. That was the great thing about Hustle is that so many new things came up without spoiling it for those who haven't seen it. Once you got through one hurdle, a new one was presented. Yeah. And it's really not even until the end where, I mean, you're like, this can't end this way, but anyway. Yeah, and that was, you know, they they did such a good job of having conflict come from so many different directions too, right? It wasn't just that this is a difficult thing to achieve and so it's, you know, Adam Sandler trying to get the basketball player in shape or, you know, ready to compete at this level. You had other players with their own agendas. You had, you know, uh, the like we talked about, the owner has his own agenda, you know, things going wrong. So you had conflict coming from all these different directions, which is great because, again, growing the intensity across Act 2, right? That's what keeps you sort of like leaning in over and over again, going like, oh, no, what's going to happen now? What's What could possibly go worse for this character? And, and that keeps you kind of like reinvesting in the outcome. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, did you watch the series Made? Oh, absolutely love yes. it, yes. So that is such a good example. Just even the first episode of that series is such a good example of conflict and building conflict and nothing going right for the protagonist. Like, 
you know, one of the comments I think that writers hear a lot is like, things are too easy for your protagonist, or, you know, you need to increase the conflict or make things hard, put your character through hell, right? Like those are all kind of tidbits of advice that writers hear. But I feel like, you know, writers um, like their characters sometimes and don't want to make things too hard or or don't see a way for the character to get through it if they make things too hard. Um, but that that first episode of Made was such a good example of like nothing went right for that character. Every single thing went wrong and she still, you know, I mean, that's kind of the point is like that makes us root for her even more because it's everything's stacked against her and we're we're on board. We're watching. We want her to succeed. So I don't think you can ever make things too hard <laughs> for your protagonist. Right. And, and that was one of the things in listening to the audiobook uh, that it was based on. It was so like... I felt so bad for this woman and, and hearing it. And then I guess it was just easier for me to watch it mm -hmm. um, sort of play out. And, and I don't know, it, it was still difficult. But yes, I mean, it was so many different things being set up. I don't want to give that away, but yeah. I lo absolutely love that. Yeah, I think that's a great one for writers to watch. If if you if you've ever gotten the note of like you're not making things hard enough on your character, you know, watch that and see just how hard you can you can be on your character without breaking them. You know, because I think maybe that's what scares writers is like if I make things too hard, I won't be able to figure out how they're going to keep going, or I won't be able to figure out kind of like how to get them through it. But that you know. Dialing up that intensity is is good. It's good for your story, and that's kind of what your audience wants, you know? Sure, and she would have these meltdowns, and then she would kind of get back on the horse, mm -hmm. and then new things would happen. Yeah, and, and we like her more for that, too, for not giving up, you know? so Right, yeah, she was very likable yeah. as a character. What is the purpose of Act 3? Well, Act 3 is to resolve that question that you've asked or that main conflict that you've sort of put your character into. Um, so it's really it's to resolve the the question that we've been exploring over the over the course of the movie, right? Um, when you uh, set up all those pieces that we talked about in Act One, all of the foundation pieces of your story, and then we watch them play out across Act Two. Um, act Three is where you answer that central dramatic question, wrap up your story, resolve that conflict. If you want to think of it that way, it's it's basically basically the resolution act. That's you know. You've done all the escalations, and there will still be some escalations in Act 3, but it's building toward uh, resolving your, your main conflict and answering that central dramatic question. What mistakes do writers make most often in Act 3? Uh, well, I think the big one, maybe the most obvious one, would be just not resolving that you know, central dramatic question or that main conflict that we're, we're tr you know, we're watching the movie to understand how that's going to wrap up. And so I think... Um, not resolving that is is maybe the the biggest or the most common sort of like newer writer mistake. Um, sometimes sometimes newer writers, um, you know, again out of fear maybe that their story is getting boring or they don't know how to how to escalate it and don't know where to go from here. They they take a left turn and start tracking a different question or a different conflict that their protagonist engages in. Um, and we really want Act Three to sort of like complete that through line, not take such a hard left that we're now watching a different movie, you know? And does that often, we, you know, sort of see comments um, underneath the trailer, oh, the trailer is better than the movie. Is it often the act three, do you think, or the or act two, or there's no hard and fast rule? Yeah, I wonder. I, I don't know for sure, but I would, I would guess that maybe 
um, a really good trailer was cut from from a movie that didn't have as much going on in Act Two and probably Act Three as well. But since Act Two is really kind of like the movie, you know, that's what the movie is. It's the character trying to do this thing. It's conflict escalating. It's stakes raising. That's really the you know Act Two, and that is the movie that we're there we're there to see. So I would imagine if if a trailer or if a movie is getting those comments of like the trailer was so much better than the movie the good interesting or entertaining moments were cut into the trailer and maybe there just wasn't enough going on in the movie to sustain interest or you know to to maintain our our um, investment in the outcome of it why is transformation of the main character important uh, well, I think we go to movies really to see transformation, right? Um, transformation means that the story had an effect. It, it, the series of events that you've watched, it had some sort of consequence. It had an effect on the character that went through them. So that's one reason. And then I think also, you know, even if nobody talks about it this way, we sort of, we look for that transformation as like um, sort of a, inspiration or you could call it a guide for for living a good life right like it's this person went through this experience and sort of came out the other side uh it can give you hope it can give you a little bit of um you know a guide a guide on how to live and be a better person um, but that's kind of like what gives the story meaning in the end you know how does transformation relate to theme well i think that most often we see the theme of the movie through the character's transformation. So whatever that lesson is that they learn from going through this whole experience, that's basically the theme of your movie. Um, you know, the the theme is like the sort of organizing principle of your story, right? It, everything connects to the theme. It kind of, everything falls under the umbrella of the theme and the way your movie plays out proves the theme to the audience. And so a big part of that is the way the protagonist goes through the story and what happens to them, how they transform because of what they've gone through. So we see the theme, the meaning or that takeaway message of the story. We see that through the way the character transforms most often. For some reason, I'm thinking of like Goodwill Hunting. It just popped mm. into my mind. It's been many years since I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, the transformation of that character, yeah, and kind of the theme would be what just sort of. Oh, I know you said hope question. earlier. Yeah, well, I think that themes um, tend to fall into like a couple of categories or patterns, right? Um, one of them can be sort of hope for um, living, right? Um, and then. Another kind of category I think is like there's beauty in the struggle, right? Like themes kind of fall into these different categories, but specific themes for particular movies, um, most often I look to the character's transformation or the lesson that they learn to kind of understand what the theme is. Um, in Goodwill Hunting, it's been a while since I saw that movie. Sure, me but, too, yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess, let's see, how does he transform from the beginning to the end? Well, so he's he's angry. He gets in fights. He's got this job that, you know, he's kind of looked down on upon. But he's definitely smarter than maybe some of the students around him there. And he um, uh, meets a girl. Yeah, I was going to say. I think the lesson has to do with the that big choice that he makes at the end, right? So he he sort of learns over the course of this story that he's not doing himself or anyone else any favors by not living up to his potential, right? Um, Again, it's been a while since I saw the movie, so hopefully that's accurate. But um, but I would say that you know that if you look at his transformation and sort of the key lesson that he needs to learn, 
or that he does learn by the end of that story, then that's kind of the key to your theme. I would say that that lesson is basically the theme. You could reword it a little bit, and then if 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 that's accurate, say for for Goodwill Hunting, if the lesson that he learns is, um, you know, life is about living up to your potential. For example, I don't know if that's true, but we'll say that that's the lesson he learns in Goodwill Hunting. Uh, I would say that the theme of the movie would be very close to that. So the overall message that that story would send, that you would maybe walk away from the movie understanding, is living up to your potential is what life's about, or it's how to live a good life, is to to try to you know strive to live up to your potential, or or what have you. What does the audience need to see in each act in order to understand the protagonist's transformation? Oh well, um, I think the the transformation has you know. It has a, an arc of its own. So in the same way that like the plot has a setup and a, a build and a resolution, I think the character's arc also has those those parts. So in Act One, we need to set up that arc by understanding what the character needs, right? Like what is their deficit or what lesson do they need in their life? Um, what sort of are they doing wrong or how are they seeing the world in a way that's not serving them and what effect is it having on their life? So we need to see that they need a lesson and we need to see sort of, we need to understand that they do need it and usually that's by seeing some sort of negative effect that not understanding that lesson is having on their life, right? And then in act two, that's where we see kind of the 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 story of this arc play out. So we need to see the things that he, the protagonist experiences in the story, sort of forcing him along that growth arc, forcing him to realize the lesson that he needs to get closer to accepting it or to um, maybe the character is resisting learning this lesson and the things that he's going through are forcing him closer and closer to kind of that breaking point where he's going to finally understand what he needs to learn from this whole this whole mess, right? Um, so act two forces the, the, the plot events and the experiences that the character has, forces him sort of closer to understanding the lesson, that thematic lesson, right? And then in act three, that's where we get to see the character embrace this lesson or not, right? In most movies that we watch that have sort of um, transformed characters and happier endings, usually they accept the lesson and embrace it and incorporate it into the way they approach the world. And then that's that's how we see that arc resolve. How does character lead to plot? Oh, well, I think you can you can use character to sort of lead you to figure out plot by related to character arc, right? So understanding what lesson your character might need to learn or what transformation you want this character to have, right? Um, and this is sort of coming at it from a like a meaning point of view instead of a, an external plot point of view. So coming kind of from inside the story to figure out the plot. So if you start with character and you think about what lesson do I want this character to learn or what transformation can I imagine this character going through that interests me, that can lead you to plot because you know that the plot that they experience needs to um, sort of create that change in the character, right? Those events have to force that character to learn that lesson. So you can sort of reverse engineer the plot from the transformation that the character's going through. Um, thinking about, okay, here's the transformation that interests me. I'm I'm curious about a character who maybe goes from being, um, you know, an independent single guy who's determined not to have any 
any ties or, or serious relationships to being someone who is committed and, um, you know, surrounded by close relationships with friends and family, right? So that's his transformation, just for example. Um, if you're interested in a character that makes that transformation, then you can reverse engineer the plot to think about like, well, what kind of events would force somebody to make that change, to learn that lesson and, and sort of transform in that way? Do you see that from time to time with new writers that there's not a real lesson that that's that's learned with their character and then having to go back and rework it? Yeah, I I do because I think that um, not all not all the time, but a lot of uh, newer writers and not even newer writers, a lot of writers come at story from interesting plot, right? From interesting what if uh, situations that are cool or fun. Um, and then, you know, developing the character to go to, go along with it. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I, I think about story in that way, too, a lot of the time. Um, but I think for newer writers, then the challenge is understanding that the, the transformation or the character development side of the story is, is still needed, <laughs> is important, right? Um, and, you know, we talked about earlier that, like, writing a screenplay is really getting a handle on lots of different skills. It's a bunch of different skill sets that you sort of have to employ all at the same time. Um, and I think character development tends to be one that maybe um, not for, not is forgotten, but gets pushed to the side because, you know, the plot is the thing that you know you need to have, right, in order for your story to for your movie to begin and, and eventually end, you know that you have to sort of like work out the steps of the plot. Um, but character, you can have characters show up on the page and go through this plot without making a change, right? And you've still written, you can still write a complete screenplay that way, right? Um, so then that's like another skill set to master, I think, or to, to learn about. Um, and so yes, with newer writers, I think a lot of times uh, not not even a lot of times, but often you'll see a complete story and the story is there. Um, and maybe they know that the character should learn something across the the course of the story, but they haven't fully, you know, gotten every step of that transformation kind of worked out in there. Sure. So maybe too worried about just how the overall story is and then not really seeing this change in the character at the end. Yeah, and I think that for, um, you know, again, because it's so many skill sets, it's it's not even, it's it's certainly not deliberate of like, oh, I'm not going to worry about character. And it's also not, um, I guess, th it's, it's a very easy thing because you're trying to juggle so many moving parts when you write a screenplay that um, it's, I totally understand <laughs> not not maybe doing all of the character development up front that you could, right? So it's just part of the rewrite process. Like you you go through it many times and then hopefully you get the character there too. Yeah. Hence the second set of eyes. To yes. See. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You said there's so many skill sets to writing a screenplay. Can you just clarify what some of those skill sets are? Yeah, I just think, you know, it's we usually think about writing a screenplay as just, it's just one thing, it's one story that I'm putting down on paper, but um, you know, when you when you try to write a screenplay well, you probably eventually realize that there's um, understanding structure, there's understanding plot and how to escalate conflict, there's understanding character and character development, uh, theme and how theme works with transformation, right? And that's just kind of like 
big stuff. And then you also think about like the on the page craft, writing action lines well, writing dialogue well, you know, like there's all these little, not little, but there are all these different skill sets that go into making a really good screenplay. Um, and I think it's a lot more than writers realize maybe at first when they come at writing a script because you, you sort of you have an idea and you love your story idea and you start putting it down on paper and that's great. I think that's the way, you know, the best way to learn is to through experience and through trying it. Um, but eventually I think, you know, anyone who's written a script or two sort of realizes, oh, this is, this is harder than I realized it was going to be because there are so many different things that I have to be good at in order to make the whole thing good, you know? So if someone just erases a paragraph on page 68, it's going to change things maybe, you know, on page 10 that they didn't, oh, wait a minute, I just realized if I do that, that's a major thing I have to then go back. Yeah, for sure. Everything's interdependent. Um, and I think also, you know, this is what, this is what makes the rewriting process so fun and so challenging is that because you can be good at one thing or have one thing kind of figured out, one area, one skill set or whatever, um, worked out and still be struggling with other areas and because they're related you know they they will probably affect each other or you know a lot of times like we were just talking about character gets sort of short shrift you know while we're trying to work out the plot because we're there's so much to think about in how do i structure this plot and how do i escalate the conflict and how do i make sure that there it's logical from beginning to end you know um and so then in the rewrite you're gonna have to bring that character development kind of to the front of your mind and pay attention to it as you're rewriting it but yes uh, everything's interdependent and i think um even when you have like some of those skill sets really worked out you you know the plot's great or whatever when one of them isn't working like say the character development or say the dialogue you just haven't paid attention to and it needs a lot of work um you know it it just it sort of you realize how much work goes into a screenplay how many different skill sets you need in order to complete that thing in a way that like can be appreciated as a whole you know can you explain the blake snyder beat sheet Sure. So um, Blake came up with this idea of, you know, sort of the 15 beats that make up any story. Um, he put them on a beat sheet. It's become famous now for, uh, it's a great tool for people who are developing a story idea, I think, or trying to learn about story structure. Um, so the one, I will say the one thing that I think people who are introduced to the beat sheet maybe overlook and then have to learn later, so this is a shortcut, <laughs> is that some of the beats are turning points and then some of the beats are sections of the story. So I'll, I'll go over them, um, but it's useful to note that because I think that's one of the things that confuses people when they're trying to learn about the 15 beats. Um, okay, so the opening image is sort of the first image of your screenplay or of your movie. It sets the tone, um, kind of establishes when and where we are um, in the world, right? Um, so the world of your story. The next beat that shows up on the beat sheet is the theme stated. And um, Blake wrote in Save the Cat, I think that theme stated shows up on page five of your screenplay. Um, 
it's, you know, the theme is usually that sort of like guiding principle or the, the big idea of the story, what it's really about kind of behind the plot and behind the characters, right? Um, and he liked to say that it was stated somewhere in the story or, you know, on page five of your screenplay, it was stated outright, usually in a line of dialogue by one of the characters. Um, the next beat on the um, on the beat sheet is the setup, and that's one of those beats to pay attention to because the setup is actually a section of the screenplay, right? So it's not just one page or one scene, it's a whole section. Um, I think he notes that it the setup is like page one to page 12 or so. Um, and so that's introducing us to the main character and their ordinary world or their normal world, sort of where they are in their life right now. Um, before the story gets started, right? And one of the things he wrote about in Save the Cat was that um, you can kind of use the idea of at home, at work, and at play to introduce your protagonist. So seeing them in these different sort of aspects of their, their normal world gives us a sense of who they are. The next beat on the beat sheet is the catalyst, and that is a beat that should be um, more of a turning point, like one scene or one moment in your screenplay. Um, the catalyst is also something that other people refer to as the inciting incident. It's really the event that kicks the story into motion. Um, sometimes you can think of it as the why now of the story. It's this event sort of, you know, throws your protagonist's world into disarray or forces them into action by creating some sort of problem or opportunity for them that they have to take advantage of, that they have to deal with, right? And that's how it starts the story into motion. Uh, the next beat is the debate section. And again, it's a, it's a section of the screenplay, so this isn't just one scene. Um, I keep emphasizing that because I've seen writers get confused and when they're trying to outline their stories, they get to like the debate section and they, they put in one scene. And then when they go to write the screenplay, they don't have enough story to sort of fill out the pages, right? Um, so the debate section is where is that section in between the catalyst or the inciting incident sort of kicking the story into motion and your protagonist deciding what to do about it. So there's that debate section in between there where we really um, try to sort of close all of the obvious doors for your protagonist and funnel them toward this main thing that they're going to do over the course of the story, right? Uh, I also like to look at the debate section as um, getting the audience on board. So you kind of tell us what's at stake for the protagonist, why they have to do this thing. Because usually the thing that they're gonna do in act two is this big, audacious, crazy, scary, dangerous thing, right? So the debate section, use that to get the audience on board and show us why do they need to do this thing? Why is it so important? What happens if they don't do it? Help us understand what the potential consequences are so that we have that tension of like wanting them to do it but being a little bit worried about them, right? Before they go into act two. Uh, so the next beat is the break into act two. So at the end of the debate section, after you've gone through all of that, gotten the audience on board, shown us why the character has to do this thing, the break into act two is the turn in your plot where you send the protagonist into act two onto that main adventure, um, pursuing that story goal, engaging in the main conflict, however you wanna look at it. That's, where, that's what the break into act two does. Um, the next section is the B story. <laughs> the, ne the next beat is the is the B story. So um, Blake liked to say that you know sort of after that main or that after that major plot point of the break into Act Two, um, it was a good time to give your protagonist and your audience a little bit of a breather and in introduce a subplot. 
Um, he talked about the B story being sort of the relationship or the subplot where your character could discuss learning the theme. Um, so a lot of times it'll be, you know, it might be a romance or it might be a friendship or something, but it's giving your character an opportunity to talk about what he's learning, talk about what he's going through and what he's learning from it. The next uh, beat on the beat sheet is fun and games. And again, this is a section of the story. So uh, the fun and games is actually on the beat sheet. It's all of the first half of act two, right? So it's, it's basically everything after the break into two up until the midpoint, which we'll get to in a sec. But so the fun and games, uh, Blake wrote that it was the, is where we see the promise of the premise. So um, whatever the concept is of your story, the thing that's hooky and intriguing about you know this story, that's where we see it sort of come to fruition is in the fun and game. So um, I think his famous examples are Liar Liar. It's where we see Jim Carrey getting used to not being able to tell a lie. Uh, or in Legally Blonde, it's where we see Elle getting acclimated to Harvard Law and she's very much a fish out of water. Um, so that's fun and game stuff. You can also think of it as trailer moments, right? Um, those, those very entertaining and very like sort of on concept moments or scenes that you would probably cut into a trailer to show somebody what's so entertaining about your movie. Um, the next beat is the midpoint. So that's, you know, the middle of your story. Um, the midpoint is a, is a more of a moment or a scene instead of a section. So again, just making that distinction. Um, but the midpoint can be a few scenes in a row, right? It's not really a section of your screenplay, but it can be a sequence because usually it's a big set piece or like an action sequence or something that is um, a little bit bigger than other scenes, right? And really the function of the midpoint is to uh, increase the opposition and or raise the stakes of your story. So. Basically what it comes down to is the midpoint is increasing the tension in your story to sort of give it more momentum to get through the second half, right? So sometimes it turns the story in an entirely new direction, but doesn't always have to. Um, in any case, what it does is it it increases sort of that, that tension feeling so that it's sort of like, you know, uh, winding up a toy and letting it go. So it gives us that extra uh, momentum and energy to get through the second half of the story. Then after the midpoint, uh, the next beat on the beat sheet is the bad guys close in. So Blake liked to say that this is sort of where um, things really start going wrong for your protagonist, right? So uh, you can have both external and internal bad guys. So it can be plot stuff is going wrong. The literal bad guys can be closing in, you know, getting closer, gaining on your protagonist. But it can also be um, emotional stuff. They're really struggling with what they're doing. They feel like they can't succeed and maybe they're having a crisis of faith or of confidence. Um, and then you can also have conflict within the protagonist team. So that's also causing things to fall apart, right? And basically the bad guys close in section is leading us sort of downhill towards the next couple of beats, which are the um, all is lost and dark night of the soul beats. And these are separate beats on the beat sheet, but I sort of like to talk about them together because they really are complementary, and they work together to kind of create that low point at the end of act two. Um, so, I, I sort of like to think of them as one is um, more external or plot focused and one is more internal or character focused. Uh, the all is lost is um, usually sort of what I think of as the plot focused one, right? Where it's, it 
looks like the character, the protagonist, is not going to succeed. It you might think of it as he's you know as far away from his goal as he'll ever be, or he feels like he's failing. He feels like there's no hope. He doesn't know how he's going to keep going on and try to get that goal. Um, and then the dark night of the soul is sort of the emotional reaction to that. Um, other things that can happen at the all is lost can be like the death of a mentor. I think this is where uh, Blake wrote that there's like that whiff of death, right? So it can be the loss or death of a mentor or of a friend or of a support system. Um, it can be a major setback like, um, you know, being exposed to the bad guy. So now they know who, who they're up against or it can be like losing an advantage, you know, but you want it to be pretty big because we're talking about kind of the big turning points of the story. Um, and then the dark night of the soul is the emotional reaction to that, right? So it's now that this big setback has happened or it looks like I'm not going to be able to achieve my goal, the protagonist sort of sitting in that for a moment and wondering what do I do from here? And a lot of times that's where they have kind of a glimmer of I finally understand the lesson of the theme. I finally understand what I should be learning from this experience. Um, they, they're not always ready to embrace that lesson at that point yet, right? But they're starting to understand like, oh, this is what all of this has been trying to teach me. Um, and then after that, the next beat is the break into act three. Um, so that's the major turning point where we go from act two to act three. And um, basically it's the beginning of the resolution section of the story, right? So that turn, you usually want it to feel like it's sort of pushing us in a new direction that is toward however the story is going to resolve, right? So your character, your protagonist might have a new plan. So after that dark night of the soul moment, they might have a moment of inspiration where they're like, oh, okay, now I know what I what I need to do. I, now I know how to defeat this bad guy. And so the break into three is where they begin that, that final push to resolve that story, right? That main conflict or... Um, you know, however you want to think about that that story. So the next beat on the beat sheet after the break into Act 3 is the finale. And this is the section that most people forget is a section of the story instead of um, one scene, right? So your finale, or the way Blake wrote about the finale, um, is that the finale was all of Act 3. So it's what you would call the resolution, right? Or he called it the finale. Um, so this is where we see that new plan that your protagonist has play out, or we see them execute that, that final push toward trying to resolve the main conflict. Um, so finale, all of act three. Um, I think that is, that, is that beat 14? And then there's 15 is the final image? Okay. So the last beat on the beat sheet is the final image. So that's after the finale has played out. We've seen how the main conflict has resolved. We've seen if the protagonist has, you know, achieved his goal, if they've succeeded or failed, how the out, you know, how the story um, ends basically, like what is the final outcome? And then we have the very last beat, which is the final image, which sort of is that you know, you might think of it as like um, almost the aftermath of the of the finale. It's now that the story is over, give us one kind of final scene or image or moment to kind of send the audience out feeling how you want them to feel. Um, knowing maybe what the character is going to do next or um, 
you know, if you need to sort of recalibrate the the emotion at the end of your story, maybe the maybe the um, the end of the finale was a big action sequence, and you want to leave us feeling like knowing that your protagonist is okay and he won and he's safe and he's you know rested and not injured anymore, or something like that. The final image can can do that. Um, Blake also liked to write that it was uh, the final image is like a bookend for the opening image, right? So. You know, I, I think um, some people look at it as you want the the change or the contrast between the opening image and the final image to to be big enough to sort of uh, show that there was a, a transformation in that in that story, right? So we went from point A to point Z, and there's a big enough contrast there that we can see this story, you know, covered some ground and had some consequence to it. If that makes sense. <laughs>